0: let's return to John chapter 3, John chapter 3, where we have heard the testimony of John the Baptist to Jesus Christ, John chapter 3, John as we discovered last week, that is John the Baptist was cast into prison approximately a year after he began his preaching ministry, Imagine your life's central calling and vocation has to be accomplished in a year. That's it. You've got a year, a year for ministry. And even during that time, your ministry begins to wane as the ministry of Jesus becomes suddenly more popular. Well, how should you respond? And John's classic answer is right there in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now let's read again verses 25 through 36, which we read last week. Although we'll focus our attention this week on verses 31 through 36. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That's referring to his own ministry. His ministry was given to him by God. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. And these are the words of John the Apostle now. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now again, our passage breaks into two sections. Verses 25 through 30 record John the Baptist's response to the rising popularity of Jesus Christ. And verses 31 through 36 now record John the Apostle's extended reflection on the identity of Jesus And these verses are a kind of postscript or reflection on the whole chapter, beginning with Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. But truly, the context, the immediate context for verses 31 through 36 is verse 30. In a mere seven words, John the Baptist summarizes what should become the philosophy of every preacher, And indeed, every witness to Jesus Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. Well, why is it so important that Jesus' words and ministry come to eclipse our own? Why should John the Baptist be satisfied when people cease following him and go off and follow Christ? Well, verse 31 explains why this exaltation of Jesus is so important. Quite literally, the incarnate Son comes from a different place than the rest of us. Yes, on the one hand, Jesus was human, a flesh and bones preacher like any other preacher. He was born of Mary and lived a normal human life. But simultaneously, verse 31 says he comes from above. Jesus was not from earth in quite the same sense that we are from the earth. He was quite literally from heaven. He came from heaven. Now, Jesus, of course, pre-existed his earthly incarnation as the very Son of God as the exalted second person of the Trinity. Now, while it is true that Jesus was indeed morally perfect, unlike those of us from below, that's not really John's emphasis. The word translated earth in verse 31 is not cosmos. Cosmos. John typically uses the term cosmos to describe the sinful, fallen world all around us. Rather, the Word speaks of the terrestrial sphere, the natural sphere, the earth, the planet. He's from. He's talking about this planet, all right? Jesus is not from this planet in the same sense that we are. In other words, if I can say it this way, Jesus is no mere earthling like the rest of us. I know it sounds like space travel or something, but Jesus is not from earth in the same sense that we are. He does not suffer from the same human limitations and human finitude that hampers the rest of us. Jesus knows and he understands things that we do not because of our finite human limitations. But let's try to be very precise. On the one hand, Jesus did indeed become completely human. He added humanity to himself in the incarnation. And Jesus experienced human limitations and weakness, including suffering and death. Jesus even confessed ignorance about important future details like the timing of his second coming. Numerous passages do indeed emphasize the humanity of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, John emphasizes that in looking at this human, this is no mere earthling. Under the control of the Spirit and the will of the Father, Jesus exercised certain divine prerogatives that indicated that he is no ordinary human like the rest of us he was in fact from heaven a place of supreme exaltation above us all so this doctrine of the incarnation or the hypostatic union to use the ancient phrase that comes out of the trinity out of the trinitarian councils indicates that jesus was both he was both fully human and fully divine simultaneously Two natures, one person. Now, Jesus apparently voluntarily relinquished the independent exercise of his divine attributes in compliance with the Father's will, and I think under the subordination of the Spirit. But Jesus never ceased to be God, he didn't give up his attributes. Although he did not always exercise those attributes. All that to say that John wants us to understand that though Jesus may have appeared ordinary enough, he was unique. He came straight out of heaven down to earth. And that's why he must increase and we must decrease. That's why Jesus' ministry should surpass every other. Now, John's comments in verse 31 reflect backwards on verse 30, but also back on verse 12. Jesus said to Nicodemus, I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Well, Jesus understood heavenly things. That's where he's from, he was supreme. Now, let's take just a moment here, and let's talk about the location of heaven. Where exactly is heaven? All right, verse 31 refers to from above. So where is that? Well, when you and I think of heaven, we typically think of the realm straight above our heads, right? It's like up there. If you look up, there's heaven. All right, and for good reason, the Bible actually uses this kind of imagery very often. You have the above and you have the below. And Jesus goes up in his ascension up to heaven. And this sort of language is really crucial because it establishes priority and establishes authority. We elevate thrones to indicate their importance. We elevate thrones because they indicate priority. Well, Jesus is from above. He's from a throne above. He's high. He's lifted up. All right? But, of course, I think we all understand the earth is a sphere, and it rotates. It spins, all right, as it moves around the sun. You can't simply draw a perpendicular line right above your head, all right, and reach heaven because that's going to point in many different directions, In fact, 12 hours from now, it's going to point in 180 degrees the opposite direction from where it it points right now, right? So where exactly is heaven? Is Is it just kind of right there, all right? All that to say, heaven is not the place that sort of floats above our heads. Hebrews actually describes the saints in heaven as surrounding us. That's intriguing. We are surrounded by all these witnesses, all right? As if there's this dimension out there that we simply cannot see. When Elisha prayed for a servant's eyes to be opened to heavenly realities, a servant suddenly saw all around him the heavenly horses and chariots. Ultimately, heaven is the presence of God. And really the awareness and ultimately the, the, the visible manifestation of the presence of God. Heaven is the unfallen realm. Heaven will be manifested finally and completely in the new earth and in the new Jerusalem where God comes to tabernacle with his people. All right? So it's a little hard to get our minds around the whole concept of heaven, but it's not it's just this place that sort of floats up there. All right? It's probably like another dimension that we can't even see. Nevertheless, the Bible does indeed use this special imagery, this spatial imagery also in verse 31. He comes from above, and this indicates Jesus' exaltation. He's authoritative. Jesus did not originate in this fallen creation where you and I got our start. He's from above. He's exalted. That's the idea. Now, there was a problem that Jesus encountered often in his ministry, People simply didn't believe him. And that's what John insists on in verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Well, that's a problem. Jesus demonstrated his unique ability to speak of heavenly things, of eternal truths, of an unfallen realm of God's true identity because he was, in fact, from heaven, He knows the Father, he knows the Spirit, but people rejected Jesus' testimony. Now, of course, John writes many, many years after the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, and John has witnessed the explosive growth of the church after Pentecost. So John does not claim in verse 32 that no one anywhere will ever believe a word that Jesus preaches. That's not what he's saying. He is speaking here with some hyperbole, of course. But John is reflecting backwards now on the ministry of Jesus and of his encounter with men like Nicodemus and ultimately on Jesus' crucifixion. And he acknowledges just how difficult it was for people to really just accept Jesus. To really accept Jesus' testimony to himself. People really struggled with this. It was challenging to look at this ordinary man and to believe that this really was the creator of all the universe. Can this really be true? Now, people, of course, loved Jesus' miracles, they flocked to hear him preach. And they wanted a Christ who would overthrow the Romans. But could they really embrace the incarnation? This is God in human flesh. Did they really believe that he who was from above, Yahweh himself, was walking among them in a human body? To really get a sense of just how difficult this doctrine, the incarnation, was for people, and still is for that matter, let's turn to John chapter 14. Let me just show you quickly here a passage in which we have a conversation between Jesus and two of His own disciples. This conversation reveals an immense trouble that even Jesus' disciples had in understanding the incarnation. Verse 5 tells us this, Thomas said to Him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. He's, of course, going back to the Father. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also." Now notice, nothing changes, but Jesus says, from now on you do know him and have seen him. Wait a minute. You don't know who the Father is, but from now on you do? What does that mean? Well, Jesus is obviously referring to himself. So Philip comes into the conversation in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Philip doesn't get it. We've not seen the Father. What are you talking about? So Jesus, verse 9, said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He doesn't get it. Philip, if if you know me, you've seen the Father. He doesn't understand all that. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So clearly, Jesus claims that he is from God the Father, that he is on his way back to God the Father. And in fact, Jesus claims to be so closely identified with the Father that to know one is to know the other. If God the Father came out of heaven in a human body, what would that look like? And the answer is exactly like Jesus. God the Father would speak the same words. God the Father would perform the same miracles. But Jesus' own disciples, Thomas and Philip, don't understand And that's what John means back in John 3 and verse 32 when he says he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Not even his own disciples get it at this point. All right? Now, our tendency may be to fault the the disciples and to judge them from our post-resurrection, post-ascension perspective. I've heard preaching that belittles the disciples for all their doubts and misgivings, but I really want to caution us against this approach. Recall that John the Baptist himself struggled with the identity of Jesus Christ. Are you He that should come, or do we look for another? It's very easy for us in hindsight, in the aftermath of the resurrection and the ascension, and 27 additional New Testament books... To look back on these disciples and to judge them with our knowledge. And that, I think, is unfair. All right? If we indeed think the incarnation is a very simple doctrine, it's only because we have too low a view of God. When you really look at the disciples' attitude toward Jesus, you have to appreciate that the Jews had a very high view of God an exalted view of God. I suspect that we, all, we have a, a, a too low view of God and maybe a high view of our ability to sort out all the mysteries. Paul actually tells us in Ephesians that the angels themselves marvel over the manifold wisdom of God displayed through the incarnation. They themselves did not grasp how God was going to redeem us until they saw what happened. That God would actually number himself with transgressors and visit a fallen planet where he was subjected to, him, to human limitations and a cruel death on the cross is indeed a mystery that is too large to understand even for the angels. And Peter tells us the prophets of old were forever searching into the very prophecies they gave trying to understand their own prophecies I dare say that I don't think any of us would have figured out the incarnation yet the disciples and John the Baptist himself really struggled Several years ago I was flying from Denver to Atlanta and the seat to my right was a devout Muslim man from California. He was on his way to his wedding in Atlanta. He was a limousine driver. And I don't know how he had met his fiance, but he was going there to be married. And we had a very cordial conversation about theology. A very enjoyable conversation, actually. And this man had an extremely exalted view of God or to use the Arabic term, Allah. This man viewed God as absolutely holy, undefiled, high, lifted up, completely separate from human sin. And I agreed with him. I agreed with him. He viewed God as immensely powerful, as breathing billions of galaxies into existence. And I agreed with him. But we came around to discuss Jesus of Nazareth. And he could not embrace the truth that God could become human. That God, who is so holy, could come down here and defile himself by living among us, just by being in a human body. That was his view. And I really came to appreciate that it was, in fact, his high view of God which kept him from embracing a humble view of the incarnation. Blaise Pascal said, Christianity is the religion of the humiliated God. And that's precisely right god humiliated and i wonder sometimes if christians embrace the incarnation too easily because they lack a high view of god many jews rejected Jesus' incarnation because they did indeed have a high and exalted view of god yes indeed jesus performed many miracles for the jews You say, why didn't they embrace the miracles? Well, you've got to remember that other Jews in their history performed miracles under, of course, the power of God. So miracles were not necessarily an indication that the one empowered to perform them was, in fact, God. I mean, Moses wasn't God, right? Elijah wasn't God. So even though they saw the miracles... We're not really fully prepared to embrace the truth that this is indeed God living among us. All that to say, I want us to really appreciate why the Jews rejected the incarnation so that we don't make the opposite mistake and adopt a low view of God. I have no objection If you can believe it, to either the Muslim or the Jew's high view of God. That's not the problem. What sets us apart is that we embrace both a high view of God and the truth of a humiliated God and the second person of the Trinity. You've got to embrace both. Now, with that in mind, let's turn back to John chapter 3. And notice John's important clarification. Immediately after telling us in verse 32 that people did not typically receive Jesus' testimony to himself, John hastens to clarify in verses 33 and 34. Well, some in fact did. Verse 33 says, "Whoever receives his testimony." Now that implies that, yes, some people did indeed embrace. Jesus' testimony to himself. And John goes on to say, whoever receives Jesus' testimony, look at his words, sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now, a seal was used to certify a document as authentic. The illustration means this. When someone receives Jesus' testimony to himself, Right, that really certifies that he believes that God speaks the truth. In other words, verse 33 means this, to believe Jesus is to believe God. To believe Jesus is to believe God. To believe Jesus is to declare one's belief that God authentically, certifiably speaks through Jesus. The Jew may say, well, I believe in God, but I'm unwilling to accept Jesus. The Muslim with a high view of God may say, I believe in God, but I don't accept Jesus' testimony to himself. And John says it's exactly the opposite. When you believe the words of Jesus, that's when you are trusting the words of God. And verse 34 explains why that is. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. God sent Jesus to speak the words of God. To hear Jesus speak is to listen to the voice of God. What would God say if He came in an earthly human body? Well, just listen to Jesus. Jesus. Jesus so completely says, whatever God would say, that to listen to one is to listen to the other. Now observe, at the end of the verse, the role of the Holy Spirit. God gave to Jesus, look at these words, the Spirit without measure, that is without any kind of limitation. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on certain individuals and they spoke for God. They even performed miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, but that spirit empowerment was temporary. If you knew Isaiah, if you knew Ezekiel, then you would have known them to be ordinary men. You would have known them to be sinners, fallen men. You would have known them to be fallible in their judgments when they were not speaking of the influence of the Spirit. Not everything Isaiah ever said during his entire life was accurate and true. But when God's Spirit breathed out a prophecy through Isaiah, that prophecy was true. That prophecy was inerrant. But again, not everything Isaiah spoke was breathed out by the Spirit. In other words, Isaiah or any other prophet received the Spirit with certain limitations. They were fallen, fallible, sinful, erring earthlings like the rest of us. Moses disobeyed God. Jonah disobeyed God. Rabbi Aha, writing some three centuries after John, rightly notes that the Holy Spirit rested on the prophets, quote, according to the measure of each prophet's assignment. The prophets were given a sufficiency of the Spirit to accomplish a particular task, But not so with Jesus. The Spirit is given without measure, without limitation. Now to understand this, let's turn back momentarily to John chapter 1. And let's notice a startling difference when it comes to Jesus. John the Baptist tells us of a revelation that he received about Jesus. A revelation concerning the Spirit. John 1 and verse 29, we read this, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And this indeed is very curious. John was older than Jesus in terms of his earthly existence. But John acknowledges the pre-existence of Jesus before his incarnation. And now observe what John says about the same Jesus in verse 32. And John bore witness. Here's John's testimony. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And notice what happened. And it remained on him. The Spirit remained on Jesus. This is something entirely new. Now, by the way, we're not talking about the way Old Testament saints were regenerated. I do believe the Spirit was involved. All right, we're talking about the giving of prophecy in this case. All right? This is new. In the Old Testament, we read of the Holy Spirit coming on people temporarily and empowering them to preach. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, right? The Spirit empowers them. It comes on them. But the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus, and He remains on Jesus. This is new. In fact, this remaining of the Spirit was supposed to be an indication to John the Baptist that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. So keep reading. Look at verse 33. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend... And notice the next two words, and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. When the Spirit remains on the prophet, this is how you know that he is no ordinary prophet. He is the Son of God. The Spirit remains. Now, with that in place, let's turn back to John 3 and verse 34, because John the Apostle is now picking up on the same truth. And again, he writes, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Why? For he gives the Spirit without measure, without limitation. This is equivalent to John the Baptist's testimony, the Spirit remained on Jesus, What this means is that everything that Jesus ever spoke was the Word of God. Everything. Of course, it didn't all get recorded in our Bible, but everything He ever spoke was God speaking. Jesus, friends, did not temporarily speak for God as did Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, or John the Baptist. Jesus did not temporarily speak under the infallible inspiration of the Spirit. The Spirit remained on him without any kind of limitation, without any kind of measure. Every word that he spoke was the exact Word of God. Now, I have made this point earlier, so I don't really want to belabor it. But would you briefly recall, on previous occasions, how we've talked about that voice that you hear in the Old Testament. When you read through the Old Testament, isn't it true that you hear the voice of God constantly? There's this voice, and it's just like always there. God speaks, He speaks to Moses, He speaks to Abraham, to David, to Elijah, to a host of others. There's this voice that's just like always there in the text. But in the New Testament, that voice that just comes ringing out of heaven, disappears. Almost entirely. It's like, where'd that voice go? In Matthew's gospel, we only heard the voice out of heaven twice. We heard it at the baptism, when the Spirit came on Jesus without measure. And here's what the voice said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the voice goes silent. And we heard the voice only one more time in Matthew at the Transfiguration. And guess what? It gave precisely the same message with a slight addendum. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then this, listen to him. And the voice goes silent. If you want to hear the voice of God, then listen to every word that Jesus ever spoke. The ubiquitous voice that thundered off the roof of Sinai and that whispered to Elijah speaks through Jesus. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So friends, when we listen to Jesus, we are listening to God's own voice. Now, verse 35 gives us two additional reasons to listen to the voice of Jesus. Two additional reasons, therefore, why every preacher should rejoice to see Jesus increase even while your own ministry decreases. Here are the reasons. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. These are two truths concerning the relationship between the Father and the Son, but they are reciprocal truths. Because the Father's love for the Son is so complete, He can indeed commit the entire creation into His hands to be redeemed. And likewise, because God has given all things into the hands of Jesus, we should be convinced of the Father's complete love for Jesus. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. They are reciprocal. God loves the son so completely and unreservedly that there is nothing but complete trust between them. Every parent of a fallen child knows the dilemma of loving your children but not fully trusting them to always say or do the right thing. That's why you have a conversation with them in the car before you get out and walk into the church building about being in your best behavior. Don't embarrass us, right? That didn't happen today, by the way, all right? It's why you hesitate before you let them get their driver's license. It's why you filter the Internet and put limits on technology and phone use. It's why you steer them away from certain friends it's why you talk through their college choices. It's why you frown on that dreamy-eyed boyfriend. It's why you counsel them about their first job. It's why you lose sleep over their irresponsible decisions. It's why you tell them to get out of bed and clean up after themselves or they're never going to develop a work ethic, right? I mean, you love your kids. But do you really fully trust them? Okay, kids, the reasons your parents don't fully trust you is because They know that you have inherited their sin nature. Right? Right, parents? You you pass along your sin nature to your kids, all right? Your parents also make mistakes, all right? Parents also sin, all right? The reason you can't fully trust any of us, all right, is because we have this fallen human nature. But think about Jesus, He shares the nature of God the Father. So when John says that God has given all things into his hand... We were talking about nothing less than the entire creation that God has set his affection upon from the beginning of time. God is going to say, okay, I can give it all to Jesus. I can completely trust him with it. No reservations, no limitations, no hesitations. I'm going to give it all to Jesus. God has precisely, friends, one and only one plan of redemption. He's only ever had one plan of redemption, by the way. God has precisely one Redeemer that He is sent into nature, into human history to recover it for His glory. There is no backup plan. There is no backup Redeemer. There is no plan B when plan A fails. God just entrusts it all to Jesus. And when He does so, you know that the Father loves Jesus. Now, listen to what John later says. In fact, if you want to turn there, let's look at John 5 and verse 22. I wasn't going to turn there, but let's just go ahead and turn there. John 5 and verse 22. And notice what Jesus will later say about this relationship. John 5 and verse 22, Jesus says, For the Father, get this, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Remarkable words. Why? That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Remember the Muslim man with a very high view of God, the Jewish man with a high view of God? Well, guess what? God wants to see to it that you honor the Son with that same degree of worship. And Jesus says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What an extraordinary statement. You know, part of the reason that we have nine Supreme Court justices and an elaborate vetting process that we're working through right now is because no human anywhere can be trusted to render perfect justice. It just doesn't happen. But God has entrusted Jesus of Nazareth with the authority to judge. Get this every person in all of human history. Every last one of us, no reservations. God just commits it all to Jesus. And God does so, again, in order that all men may honor the Son. So friends, it's one thing for the Jew or your Muslim seed mate to exalt God as the high creator. I have no problem with that. But that's not sufficient. You've got to exalt the humiliated God. You've got to embrace God's Son who was utterly humiliated on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth. You've got to worship God's Son, now resurrected and given all authority over all nations to rule them with a rod of iron, Psalm 2. And if you refuse to honor the Son, then you do not honor the Father, regardless of how high your view of God is. That's what he said. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So friends, this is what really sets Christianity apart from Judaism, from Islam, from so many other faiths. Christianity is the story of the incarnate God who visits his lost planet. The creator of all those endless galaxies confined to the womb of a young Palestinian girl. It is the biggest story in the smallest space. Jesus was born in the squalor and the drenching saliva and the stench of the cattle. He is the child of international refugees fleeing the murderous sword of Herod. When you think about all these Ukrainians going right over the border into Poland. All right, that was Jesus' experience. Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt. Christianity, friends, is the story of a God who sleeps. My Muslim friend couldn't understand that. Who hungers, who cries, who bleeds. It's the story of a God who starves in the burning wilderness ruined by Adam's sin. The God betrayed by the ones He loves. His life is valued less than a criminal. He is betrayed by a friend for the price of a slave. Christianity is the story of a God who is humiliated, tortured, and finally murdered. That story begins in the Jewish Old Testament with God exposing the nakedness of His image bearers who ate the forbidden tree. And it ends with the image bearers exposing the nakedness of God, nailing Him to the forbidden tree. God humiliated But actually, that's not the end. For all the shame and suffering he endured, he came back in three days permanently incarnated. He brought his body back. You can touch the scars in the hands of God. Jesus breathed on his disciples. He ate with them. You can trace his footprints on the road to Emmaus. And he came back to inaugurate a whole new humanity in himself. And at the resurrection, Jesus claimed, all authority, get this, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that resurrection declaration explains why John, in chapter 3 and verse 35, reflecting back now on Jesus' life, can write these words, the Father loves the Son, and he has given all things into his hand. That happened at the resurrection. You take it all and rule over it all. So, friends, what does God now demand of the nations? Psalm 2. What does God demand of the Jews with their high view of God? What does God demand of the Muslim with his high and exalted view of God? What does he demand of the pious American politician who speaks of God on the campaign trail because he thinks it's going to garner him some votes? But he fails to mention the name of Jesus. What does God demand of the world? You must embrace the Son who was made low. You must embrace the flesh and blood Savior who walked among us under the power of the Spirit without limitation. You must embrace a son who the spirit who through the spirit offered us his life as a brutal sacrifice on a wicked instrument of torture. Friends, what you have to embrace is the folly of the cross. In a couple of weeks I'm going to preach a sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 on this very theme the folly of the cross. We'll do that in anticipation for Easter. But let me encourage you to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Really ask yourself this question, do I embrace the folly of the cross? And when you do, John 3 and verse 36 becomes reality. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But should you choose not to believe, the end of the verse describes your fate. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Shall we pray? Father, we give you thanks for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we think of over a billion Muslims in the world today. Many of whom will enter a mosque with their high view of God, and yet they reject the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for those laboring in Muslim countries today, that Your Spirit, Lord, would work and move and convince Muslim men and women that You did indeed manifest Yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. You make an atonement for our sins and resurrect with all authority. We pray, Lord, for Muslims to embrace You. We think of Jews, Lord, even at this hour, standing at the wailing wall, lamenting, weeping, filling the cracks with their little prayers. Lord, we pray that they would indeed embrace the Incarnation. We think of Jews, Lord, in Ukraine, Jews across Europe, Lord, that Your people descended from Abraham would indeed have their eyes open to the truth. And Lord, we pray that Jeremiah 31 would be fulfilled that we might even see it fulfilled in our day. As Romans 11 says, Lord, that people, the Jews, would turn and embrace, embrace their Messiah. Father, we think of our own nation, we think of our own rulers, our own leaders. In God we trust, or so we say, but we have yet to put our trust in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that men and women today would turn other unacceptable views of God, and embrace the incarnation of Christ. We pray, Lord, that men and women across this country who hear Your truth today from thousands of pulpits would indeed see Jesus for who He truly is. Father, we again pray for our leaders, and Lord, many of whom just simply give no indication whatsoever that they are ruled by your spirit, that they are submissive to your will, and that are they are seeking your truth. We just we just don't find any indication of that, Lord, with many, many of our rulers. We pray, Lord, that you would turn their hearts to you. And Father, I pray for anyone here today who this may be completely new to them. Lord, that they would be willing to look into the scriptures and really, truly understand and embrace Jesus Christ. And for Brother Joseph, again, as he ministers to the internationals, we know there are some there who have not embraced the faith. One, at least, that I know is very inquisitive. And Father, we pray that you would do a work in those hearts. We pray for our children, Lord, that each and every one would come to truly embrace Jesus Christ. Embrace his suffering on the cross. And embrace his gospel. And Lord, as we look forward to Easter, Palm Sunday and the resurrection and the coming month, Lord, I pray that we would just be thrilled and exalted as we consider the wonderful coming of our incarnate Savior who not only was virgin born but was bodily resurrected. We thank you, Lord, and in this time where the earth is renewed with flowers and leaves, that we would look forward to the renewal of all things and the new creation to come. and We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.